Brent White. I'm the pastor of Hampton United Methodist Church in Hampton, Georgia. In a moment, you're going to hear a sermon that I preached on April 9th, 2017. It was Palm Sunday, and the scripture was Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. Let me read this now. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father Almighty, the question the crowds ask in today's scripture, Who is this? is a question that every man, woman, and child must answer for themselves. Who is Jesus? All of us, whether we have never known Jesus as our Savior and Lord or whether we've been following him most of our lives, all of us can search our hearts and identify areas in our lives that need to be submitted to the Lordship of your Son, Jesus, that need to be consistent with what we say we believe about him. Help us even during this sermon time to look for ways we can be more faithful. I pray that your spirit would empower my own words and that through them all of us could hear your word. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we were shocked to hear about President Bashar al-Assad and his decision to send chemical weapons against a rebel-held area in his country, which killed at least 86 civilians, including 28 children. The attack injured another 550, according to the UN. The chemical that was so deadly was sarin nerve gas, which closes its victims' throats so they can't breathe. It causes a stabbing pain in their eyes. It makes its victims feel as if their bodies are on fire, and it makes their heads feel as if they're going to explode. It is a truly ghastly way to die, which is why 
it has been banned in conventional warfare. So it was within this context that the United States fired 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles at the Air Force Base that launched the attacks. I hope that our attack is effective. Whether it proves to be or not, it's easy to imagine that Assad's victims and or the families of his victims felt at least a small measure of vindication when they heard about the U.S. strike. Not that the U.S. attack begins to make up for what Assad did, but at least it's something. Can you imagine how strongly the victims and their families desire that justice be done? Can you imagine how strongly they desire that the perpetrators of this evil will be punished? If you can imagine it, then you can get a sense of what the crowds in today's scripture were feeling as they cheered Jesus on, hailing him as their Messiah and as their king. The one who would finally balance the scales of justice and punish the wrongdoers. After all, the people in the crowd, they knew all about the President Assad's of the world. They went by different names. Herod, Pontius Pilate, Caesar, but they were all the same. Many of the people in the crowd had witnessed firsthand atrocities that were, that were the first century equivalent of any sarin gas attack on their loved ones, just as their ancestors had witnessed atrocities against their loved ones for hundreds of years now. This is the context in which Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Surely the crowd thought, surely they hoped that this Jesus was the long promised, the long prophesied Messiah, the King and Savior who would make the world right. And through his deeply symbolic, deeply prophetic action, Jesus was telling the crowds, I am that person. I am the Messiah. But if Jesus is the Messiah, there are three roles, biblically speaking, that he must fulfill. And in today's scripture, he fulfills all three. Allow me to talk briefly about each of these three. First, if Jesus is the Messiah, he has to be the prophet. We see this in verse 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus. Not just any prophet, but the prophet. John's gospel makes this clear, for instance. After Jesus miraculously feeds the multitudes, the 5,000, the people say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And who is the prophet? This is a messianic reference that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. God tells Moses something, and he repeats this to the Israelites in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. God says, I'll raise up a prophet for them from among their fellow Israelites 
one just like you. I'll put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. Now, this is really cool to me. And I I promise I just noticed this in the past couple of years. I, I knew that there was a messianic prophecy in Deuteronomy, but I never paid attention to the context surrounding that passage. In this passage, Moses is referring to the time when the Israelites are gathered at Mount Sinai and God is speaking to them the Ten Commandments. When God spoke to them at Sinai, there was thunder and flashes of lightning and smoke, and it was terrifying to the people. They finally told Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us, lest we die. Why were they afraid of dying when God spoke to them? Because in the Bible, it's terrifying to come into the presence of God. When Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis 32, Jacob was surprised that that he was still alive because he, he was surprised that he saw God face to face and he lived to tell about it. God tells Moses in Exodus that no one sees the face of God and lives. When Isaiah encounters God in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Angels are frightening enough for human beings to see in Scripture. They have to go around saying, fear not. Can you imagine how frightening it would be to be directly in the presence of a holy God? Sinful human beings cannot bear it. They will die. But suppose God really wants to reach us directly to teach us directly, to speak to us directly, to reveal himself to us directly. How is he going to do that if it means our death? The only way is if God himself becomes one of us, becomes flesh and blood just like us. And that's what God does in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy back in Deuteronomy, but he's fulfilling it in a way that far exceeds anyone's expectations. He speaks God's word to us because he is nothing less than God himself, God in the flesh. Jesus is the Messiah, which means he is the prophet. The second messianic role that Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills is this. He is a priest, not just any priest. This is why in the verses immediately following today's scripture, Jesus goes into the temple and overturns the money changers tables and and drives them out of the temple. He's the priest after all. He's in charge of the temple. But today's scripture points to a deeper way in which he's priest. Notice he's riding into Jerusalem, not on a conquering war horse, the way conquering heroes are supposed to. No, he's riding in on a donkey. 
But not just a donkey, the colt of a donkey, a foal of a donkey, as scripture says. Do you get the picture? Jesus, the king, the prophet, the the high priest is riding in on a baby donkey. It's, It's kind of a ridiculous image for a conquering war hero. Do you know what kind of war hero rides a baby donkey? The kind of war hero who gets slaughtered in battle. You can't win a conventional battle riding a baby donkey. You'll get yourself killed. Yet this is exactly what Jesus is is going to do. And this is exactly how Jesus is going to win his battle over sin and death and the devil by allowing himself to be slaughtered on the cross. As Hebrews 2.17 says, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation is what a priest does when he offers a sacrifice on the altar. The sacrifice turns away God's wrath and brings forgiveness of sins. Except Jesus... Our true high priest offers himself as the once for all atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we see this prophesied in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is our high priest. The third and final role that Jesus must fulfill is that he must be the king. And that's why Jesus orchestrates everything that happens here because he's he's intending to fulfill the scripture in Zechariah 9.9, which Matthew quotes in verse 5. Behold, your king is coming to you. Jesus is our true king. Or he's, he's supposed to be. One preacher said that in the triumphal entry, what Jesus is is saying through his actions is this. Crown me king or kill me. Those are your only two choices. Our, Our culture, of course, wants, they want a third option. They want an option that says that we should honor Jesus as a as a great moral teacher without actually making him king over our lives. This reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis wrote many years ago in Mere Christianity. He wrote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Needless to say, if Jesus is God, then he has earned the right to be king over our lives. But do you know what the problem is? with Jesus being king over our lives. The problem is, we are a bunch of Democrats. Now, I know what many of you are thinking, not all of you, but what many of you are thinking is, not me, I'm a Republican. But that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, we are small d Democrats. Because we treat our King Jesus as if we get a vote. in the matter. But when it comes to following our King Jesus, we don't get a vote. It's all about him and what he wants. We should live our lives absolutely dedicated to loving and serving him alone, to working for his glory rather than for our own glory, right? And yet, if we examine our thoughts, our words, our actions, well, it's as if We vote against our king every day. We vote against him, for example, when we don't go to him every day in prayer. We vote against him when we don't don't spend time every day listening to him speak to us through his holy word. We vote against him when we don't make worship at church on Sunday morning a priority, uh, much less the rest of the week. We vote against him when we're unable to tithe, yet we always find the money for every other financial priority. We vote against him when we're too embarrassed to witness for him. We vote against him when we make other things king in our lives, whether it's career or school or money or popularity or relationships or sports or hobbies we vote against him by the by the things we watch at the movies or on our smartphones or on our web browsers we vote against him when we are unfaithful to him in our sex lives what about you in what ways are you rebelling right now against our king jesus let me tell you one one way that i have Learned that I have been rebelling against Jesus in my life. And I want to preface it by offering a quote from a man named William Temple. He is a, was a theologian in the middle of the 20th century. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the Church of England. He said the following, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Think about that. Here is something that the Lord has shown me, or at least reminded me during this season of Lent. If it's true that our religion is what we do with our solitude, what we, what we think about, what we obsess over when we're left alone with our thoughts, maybe before we drift off to sleep at night, then my religion is what other people Think of me. Years ago, in, in my first job out of college, I had a mentor 
a very successful salesman named Alec. And one time Alec told me that he didn't care nearly as much about his commission checks as he did about recognition. What really made him happy, what made him feel fulfilled, what, what really put gas in his tank, what got him up in the morning was, was being recognized for his accomplishments. At the time, at the time, given how small my own commission checks were, I thought he was nuts. But now I'm afraid I know exactly what he means. I have too often made an idol out of recognition. I desperately crave the adoration and praise of others. And when I perceive that my standing before others is threatened in some way, I fall apart. I spend spend so much of my solitude obsessing over other people's opinions of me. Which means I've obviously chosen the wrong career. (laughs) Every... Even even a couple of weeks ago, I'm I'm kidding, but even a couple of weeks ago on Facebook, um, some high school classmates um, announced that, you know, within the next year, we're going to have to be, you know, uh, um, organizing a 30th class reunion because I graduated in 1988. And alongside this announcement on Facebook was a video um, it was a video that was that was ripped from a from an old VHS tape, and it was scenes of classmates goofing off and and make, making faces for the camera in hallways, classrooms, breezeways in the cafeteria. My classmates they all looked like extras from the from the movie The Breakfast Club. <laughs> They're all young and, and beautiful, at least in that 80s sort of way. Then there's me. I'm in it for, for a split second. And in that moment, I was by myself. I don't know why. But I promise my internal monologue that I had in my head while I was watching this video sounded something like this. Why are you by yourself, Brent? Where are your friends? Did you have any friends? You're only in this video because you got in the way of the camera when they were trying to film somebody else. Are you a loser? Were you a loser? Surely when people see this video, that's what they're going to be thinking. And what must they think of you now? What do you have to show for yourself for the past 30 years? If you go to this reunion as if anybody wants to see you anyway, are you finally going to lose that last 10 pounds? Those are the kind of things I was thinking. This is just one, look, this is just one small trivial episode in my life, I know. But I promise you, God help me, I have these kinds of internal monologues all the time. Now, getting back to William Temple's point, how much happier would I be if my religion were properly centered, not on the false God of what other people think of me, but on the God whose opinion of me never changes, who who couldn't think more highly of me? who couldn't love me more, and no one or nothing can take away any of God's esteem for me. 
Think about how a human parent loves a child. Think about that unbreakable bond of love that we human parents have for our children. God's love is like that, but infinitely more so because God loves us perfectly. And God loves you as his beloved child if you believe in Jesus. God proved how much he loves us when God came riding into Jerusalem on a baby donkey as a king who was about to be slaughtered. He took our sins upon himself on the cross and he suffered the penalty for them that we deserved to suffer. And when we turn to him in faith, he will give us in exchange his righteousness as a free gift. The people in today's scripture probably weren't thinking much about their personal sin or their guilt before God. They wanted a Messiah who would solve their political problems, keep them safe, bring them prosperity, see to it that the evildoers who hurt them would be punished. There's nothing wrong with that desire, except every person in that crowd would die someday. And life on earth, no matter how safe, no matter how peaceful, no matter how prosperous, no matter how just, is only the most infinitesimal blip of time when compared to our lives in eternity. Our King Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a baby donkey in order to save us, not for just the short span of time of our lives on earth, but for eternity. But I would be remiss if I didn't offer this warning to you and to me. Jesus came the first time riding in on a baby donkey. Yet Revelation warns us in highly poetic, figurative language, but it warns us that when Jesus comes a second time, he won't be riding a baby donkey. He will be riding a white horse, a war horse. And the one sitting on this white horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And this is not his own blood. This is the blood of his enemies. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, you do not want to meet Jesus riding on the white horse unless you first met Jesus riding on a baby donkey.
The time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. In other words, the time in which we live is a time of mercy, forgiveness and grace. It won't last forever. It is the only time that any of us has to meet our King Jesus riding on that baby donkey. It is the only time that we have to receive this gift of mercy, forgiveness, and grace. Please use this time wisely. Please make Jesus king of your lives while you still can. Almighty God, challenging words from your word. Show us how these words apply to our lives. Teach us now in this season of mercy to receive mercy and to show mercy to others. Show us those areas where we haven't yet made your son king. And give us the power by the Holy Spirit to repent. And if anyone in this sanctuary hasn't yet received the gift of mercy, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of saving grace that you give us through faith in your son Jesus, Let him or her do so, even today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll join us for worship at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 and a traditional service at 11.